you have your Bibles, turn them with me to the Gospel of Luke and to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. And that to verse 27. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, as we make our way to the Mount, would we be led to the Savior yet again? And as we hear His voice, make our hearts receptive, make our wills ready. By Your Spirit, transform us closer into the image of Him we seek to worship. Be gracious to us now in the preaching of Your Holy Word. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. As we return to the Sermon on the Mount, you'll remember that this sermon began following Jesus' decision to choose twelve amongst all of His disciples. Not 10 or 11 or even 13, but 12. And that was not coincidental. When the Apostle John described his vision of the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21, he used the imagery of a city. A heavenly city with gates and foundations. Gates with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and foundations with the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You see, Jesus' choosing of the twelve is no accident. Just as the twelve tribes of Israel formed the basis of God's people under the old, these twelve apostles would constitute the new. In choosing these twelve disciples, Jesus was creating a new covenant people. A people recognized not by external ceremony, but by internal spirituality. A people marked out by their poverty and by their hunger and by their mourning. A people utterly different from the world. And why is that? What is the basis of such a a contrast? It's because we who belong to the kingdom of God temporarily live in the kingdom of this world. And what we need to know is that there is a cosmic clash between these two kingdoms. There's no overlap. There's nothing that is cross-cultural between the two. The kingdom of God has no part, nor does it have any fellowship 
with the kingdom of this world. One of the things that a keen observer of the gospel accounts, gospel accounts will notice is the high volume of demonic activity in the gospels. Never before were there so many incidents of demon possession. Luke records for us, if you want to turn back, back in chapter 4, verse 31, that Jesus' first healing was the casting of an unclean demon that, from, that had possessed a man. Luke goes on to describe Jesus' Galilean ministry, chapter 4, verse 41, as that of laying hands on the sick and healing them of various diseases in which demons, he says, came out of many. And notice here in chapter 6 prior to Jesus delivering His Sermon on the Mount, it says there that there was a great multitude of people from all over who came to hear Him to be healed of their diseases. But notice Luke chapter 6, verse 18, that Luke singles out one specific kind of healing. Out of all the different illnesses, he goes out of the way to point out one. Those who were troubled with unclean spirits were healed. The question is, why Why such an emphasis here? Why does Luke highlight this particular healing? It's because the kingdom of light is breaking in and breaking through, infiltrating, as it were, the kingdom of darkness. There's a new king in the cosmos. And the kingdom of darkness knows it. This is why Jesus said to His disciples, Blessed are you, not if people hate you. But blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and when they spurn your name on account of the Son of Man. You see, for us who follow Jesus, we are in the midst of a holy war between two kingdoms. And here's the thing. One of the great struggles of the Christian is to maintain that distinction. To prevent a blurring of those lines. There's no dual citizenship to both kingdoms here. No, we either belong to one or we belong to the other. You know, I thought it would be good for us at our retreat two weeks ago uh, to devotionally read First Peter. Because he reminds us from the very first sentence of his letter that we are strangers. We are foreigners. We are exiles. To say, in other words, we belong to an altogether different kingdom. And because we belong to such a vastly different kingdom, we live in a manner that is vastly different from the world. What Jesus wants to speak to us now is this. How radical is that life? How vastly different is this kingdom life? And Jesus says to us this. He says, love your enemies. Here on this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lifted up His eyes upon His disciples and He said to them, here is what genuine discipleship looks like. For you who follow Me, this is how you'll live. You will love and do good to those who hate you and bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who seek to do you harm. And what we immediately find is that our Lord's words are rather shocking. And rightly so. Because such a thing is unheard of. The best that the contemporary world will say to us is this. 
to learn to love ourselves. The best that the religious world will teach us is that we love our neighbors. But the thing that distinguishes those who live by the very power of the gospel and of His Son, Jesus Christ, is that He commands us to love our enemies. It's totally different. Well, you might say, how? How in the world is that possible? It's not possible. By any worldly means, it is not possible. And that's something we can never forget when we, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount. It can only be lived out supernaturally. As fallen creatures, we have a default setting. And I think you know what that means. Some of our devices, we have, they have a default setting. It's the mode in which whatever we're using, it goes back to the same goes with us. Internally, we have a default mode and it is not to be spiritually minded, but rather mindful of ourselves and our selfish desires. And the way in which Jesus demonstrates the power of His kingdom is by transforming the lives of those who belong to His kingdom. Notice that when Jesus came, when Jesus came to this earth and when He began His ministry, remember what He preached? He preached, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was proclaiming the coming and the presence of the kingdom of God and that in His own person. And it came, if you remember, with great power, not only in His preaching and in His teaching, but by the powers in which He performed extraordinary miracles, casting out demons, healing the lame, restoring sight to the blind, calming the storm. Jesus was putting on display the very power of His kingdom in visible form through the mighty works of His power. But here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is doing something even more dramatic than any miracle. He is doing something even more lasting than the healing of a disease or the reversal of wind. He is demonstrating far more the power of the kingdom in the transformation of lives who are His disciples. Why? To show that the very power of the kingdom of light over the kingdom of darkness. So that when His followers live transformed lives that are so countercultural and so otherworldly, it would speak ever so loudly as to the power of God's kingdom. And this demonstration, church, is no better found in our love. Not love for ourselves. And not even love for neighbor. But love for the enemy. You can't explain that love apart from gospel power. You can't. It can only be supernatural. And that's so important for us to know as we listen in now on the Lord's Sermon which can be divided into three questions. Number one is this. What does it mean to love our enemy? What does Jesus prescribe here for us in this passage? Number two, how do we apply this most difficult command? What will it look like? That's number two. Number three, what is the motivation behind such a command? This isn't natural for us as we just mentioned. So what will propel us to believe and to do this word? That's number three. So three questions in which we begin with the first. 
What does it mean to love one's enemy? Well, it's important to note before we dive any deeper is that Jesus isn't offering to us a mere suggestion, but, he's, but this is a command. This is not good advice. A lot of people would actually say that this is bad advice. But Jesus demands that we love our enemies. It's the manner in which those who are in the kingdom operate and live. And so whether it seems beyond our attainment or not, Jesus calls us to love this way. Anything less, listen to this, anything less is not Christian love. Now to understand what Jesus is saying here, a little context is needed. What Jesus says here is not something in which God had never revealed. Leave your finger here in Luke and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 17. If you've been following with our yearly Bible reading plan, we came across this particular passage this week. It writes, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Well, it was through Moses in which God told the people of Israel in Leviticus 19 that they were to love their neighbor. Well, the immediate question that comes to mind is, who is my neighbor? And you may recall that that there was a story of a young lawyer who approached Jesus in order to test him, in which he asked, Teacher, what is it that I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, he responded, Well, what's written in the law? And the lawyer responded, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, great answer. Do this and you'll live. But there in Luke 10, it says that the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, in his mind, he had no problem loving God. But he wanted to know how far out this love had to be extended. It's because he had been taught by the teachers of the law in his day that love for neighbor only extended as far as one's own community. For the Jew, it was his fellow man. The rabbis interpreted Leviticus 19 as love for only the sons of your people, the children of your people, so that yes, they were to emphatically love their own people. But they wrongly assumed that they were free to hate others to their Heart's content. And what does the natural heart want to do? What does the natural heart want to do with someone who is an aggressor? Hate. Hate. Hate one's enemy. And in their minds, that notion was even more justified when they saw those times in history past when God told the people of Israel to take the land in which He had given them. Teacher Nate just taught a sermon on that which meant devoting their enemies to destruction. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, so on. So why couldn't Israel hate their enemies? Well, God was using Israel to judge the nations around Him because of their wicked deeds. He had commanded them. 
They were specific instructions given to the people of Israel in that particular time and place. And it wasn't prescriptive for His people throughout all time. God is not telling us to go out and destroy and decimate everyone we deem to be an enemy. Which is why the Scriptures must always be read in context. But the rabbis, they failed in this. They wanted to read into God's law only what they wanted to see. And sometimes that happens to us as Christians. We only see what we want to see. And we believe only what we want to believe. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees did. And they married love for neighbor and judgment uh, for others together to conclude that they were free to hate their enemy. And they made this normative for life. But this wasn't what the law was telling them to do. The Old Testament taught that God's people were to not only love and care for their neighbors, but also their enemies. Proverbs 24.17 Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Well, how did Jesus respond to that lawyer? How did He respond to that lawyer who was looking for an exception? Who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor so that I can create the boundary and be free to treat those outside of it however way I please? Tell me what the exceptions are. Well, how did Jesus respond? By telling him a story of a good Samaritan where a Jewish man was beaten, dying, and in need only to be passed by the two most Jewish men in society, a priest and a Levite. But it was the Samaritan, an enemy, who finds him, tends to him, loves him. He cares for his enemy when his enemy is hopeless and defenseless. Now I want you to notice, if you're back at Luke chapter 6, notice what Jesus is telling us here on the Sermon on the Mount. That we are not to love our enemies when they are just hopeless and defenseless. But we are to love our enemies when they hate you and when they curse you and when they abuse you, when they are exercising enmity against you. Look at verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Love your enemies, says Jesus, when they are doing all manners of evil to you. And so not only is compassion to be drawn out of your soul when your enemy is weak and needy, but when they are actively persecuting you. It is in our default setting to ask like the lawyer did, in what situations are we exempt from this? And beloved, the answer is there's none. There's none. There's nothing more radical, nothing more shocking. One of the great things about the prescription in which Jesus gives to us is that He practices what He preaches. For even Jesus on the cross, extended on the tree, uttered, remember, Father, forgive them, for they, not, they know not what they do. He was praying for His enemies. You see, we are not much different from these rabbis of old. We think of love as something that is owed 
only to those whom we deem worthy to love. That's how we operate. Our family, friends, our church community, to those whom we have vested interest, and that's where it ends. But hear this, Christian. The Lord Jesus Christ is telling you and He's telling me to love the people in our lives that bother us, that annoy us, that frustrate us. Those people whose actions at times hurt us and demean us. Those people that treat us with selfish intent and disregard. And we have people like that in our lives. And truth be told, many of them are in our community, right? They actually are our neighbor. Now you might be saying quietly in your heart, this is how I think, but Pastor Danny, you don't understand. You don't understand. And I'll admit, I might not understand. Because I confess that the same struggle to love certain persons, it takes place in my own life as well. But at the end of the day, if you and I are followers of Jesus, what right do we have to look into the face of our Savior and to say, I don't think you understand, Jesus. You see, what distinguishes His disciples is their love. What does He tell us in John 13? By this, everyone will know that you are My disciples if you love one another. And you see, Christ will not let us run away from this. You know, some of us think that the best way to deal with an enemy is, or someone who frustrates us, annoys us, all that stuff, is to avoid them. I'm just going to avoid them. I'm going to avoid them in my actions, avoid them in my heart. Jesus says to us, that's not love. He says, that's not love. Though we might try to justify it as love, that is rather the opposite of love. Jesus says here in Luke 6, love your enemies. And the word he uses for love is not storge, which is natural love, or eros, which is romantic love, or philia, which is mutual love. But he says agape love. Love that proceeds not from the beloved, but from the one who loves. Which means this love is a deliberate affection, not on the basis of who a person is or what a person deserves, but a love that is solely and entirely on the grace of God. That's why this is an unnatural love. And that because it can only come by way of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this is how we as Christians, this is how we love. It comes out of a person, out of a person who is truly born again. By not asking who is my neighbor, but rather who is my enemy, so that I might know it's that enemy that I need to love. And we all have our enemies. Some of them are public. Maybe it could be a, a greedy company that takes advantage of their customers or consumers. Maybe it's an ungodly politician who introduces a wicked legislation. Maybe it's a terrorist who seeks to kill and destroy. But many are not really public. But most are personal. It might be a demeaning boss. Maybe a scheming co-worker. 
a falling out with a friend, a hostile spouse? Who is the person that in your default setting you are tempted to disregard, even despise? The Lord Jesus tells us that we who reside in His kingdom, that we are to love them. And how, how are we to love them? Notice secondly, the application of this command. What does this look like? It's not that we avoid and disregard and forget. Jesus says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. There's nothing inactive about this love here. Which means to possess an attitude of laxity or indifference is nothing of what Jesus describes here as Christian love. Now, it's going to be our tendency to come up with a thousand scenarios. I was talking with some of our brothers during a time of fellowship last night. and We were talking about this passage. We're talking about how you could come up with 2,000 scenarios with this. And it was a great time of fellowship. And we can ask, what do I do here? And how does it apply there? And do you always have to do it like this? Or what about that way? And I think before we try to dissect every circumstance, it would be more wise to understand some governing principles. The first is this. We cannot take Jesus' words and divorce them from the testimony of all of Scripture. We have to remember that. That's one of the common errors of many who fail to understand what Jesus is saying here in Luke chapter 6. They try to create a theology around Luke 6 apart from the rest of the Bible. As an example, Jesus is not calling us to be pacifists. To be non-resistant at all times. To allow anyone to do anything that might be harmful to us or to others. That's not what Jesus means when He says in verse 29, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. That if an intruder were to break into my home in the middle of the night with the intention of harming my family, that I would simply lay down and let them do as they please to my wife and to my children. Absolutely not. I would do everything in my power to stop the assailant even if it meant the expense of that person's life. God made clear in His law, in the sixth commandment, that murder was killing, but that not all killing is murder. A different word is used in the Hebrew, which means not all acts of killing are regarded as murder and against God's law. Exodus 22 doesn't prescribe the death penalty if a person kills in self-defense when that person has no other option to protect life and property. Jesus even told His disciples in Luke 22, sell your cloak, buy a sword, for dangerous and perilous times were upon them. Paul spoke of the purpose of civil authorities as bearing not the sword in vain. And when soldiers came to John the Baptist to be baptized and they asked what they were to now do, he didn't tell them to lay their weapons down and to resign from their post, no. Rather, he said, stop abusing your power. We can go on and on and on. All this to say, we need to understand the context of the whole of Scripture. Jesus is not calling us to be pacifists. Nor is He calling us to be aggressors, seeking vengeance upon our enemies. Paul says it clearly that we ought not to avenge ourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. What we are to do is love. The second principle is this. 
the demonstration of love, even if coupled with good intentions, must never compromise our obedience to God. Loving our enemies will not mean joining in or participating in their deeds. There's a reason why they are an enemy in the purest sense. They're doing something evil and wicked for the purpose of persecuting Christians and the cause of Christ. The radical love that is to be displayed by Christians is one that is to make known the discrepancy of the kingdom of light compared to the kingdom of darkness. To show that this love is so radical and otherworldly and countercultural. And so we must maintain holiness and purity and righteousness. And that will be a testament to our love. It's because the ultimate aim is our gospel witness. If we compromise in our obedience, we compromise in our gospel witness. Sometimes Christians think they can win over the world. How? By being like the world. And in doing so, they they destroy the beauty and the exclusivity of the gospel. Rather than the city on a hill, some Christians try to attempt to live like the world in the valley. And there's no brightness. The world sees nothing of the glory of Christ. Which leads us to our third principle. Such love is meant to drive the enemy to repentance. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. We have a ministry of reconciliation even with our enemies that they might be brought into a saving relationship with God in whose image they bear. Remember Stephen in the book of Acts while he was being stoned, stoned by his enemies, what did he do? He prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Why Why would he do that? It's because he had learned from the Savior that as he hung there on the cross, he looked towards his Father and he prayed, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you see, it's the Father that answered both of their prayers. The prayer of His Son Stephen and His only begotten Jesus. Luke tells us in Acts 8, immediately after His death, that there was a man named Saul. We know what happened to Saul. And when did the Lord answer the prayer of His most holy Son, whom He had loved from eternity past? Luke tells us, Acts 22, as, or Acts 2, as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, He closed his sermon by saying this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom, and this is what he says, you crucified. He's preaching to the crowd that had killed Jesus. He's preaching to the crowd who are the enemies of Jesus. Yet by the Spirit, they were now coming to faith in Him. And it says there that 3,000 received the word and they were baptized. Church, we might not have a lot of sworn enemies. But we do have people in our lives that we would like to not have in our lives. It might be an unbelieving superior. Maybe for you college students. Maybe it's a pagan professor. Maybe even again, like I said, an ungodly politician. Jesus says we ought to love them. We ought to love them by doing good to them. Blessing them when they curse us. 
praying for them? Are you interceding for those people in your life? That they might be reconciled to Christ. And again, that's not our natural instinct. Notice Jesus in this sermon is specifically referring to those who persecute and revile and assault Christians. But again, it's our natural inclination to not only disregard whom we would see as our enemy, but also comes with family members, friends, even people in this church. I think we need to examine ourselves and ask, is there anyone where we have bitter feelings about? Anyone in my family? Anyone in this church? Isn't it true that those we seem to have issue with are those in closest proximity to us? What might admonish us is that these, these are people who are not even our enemies. These are our fellow Christians. Our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that we would be bitter against them? How is it that we would feel feelings of, or have feelings of enmity against them? There's nothing Christian about that. How is it that we would fail to love them? That would be such a clear indication of what kingdom we truly belong. Have you interceded on their behalf? Have you asked the Lord to do something in your own heart? And you see, nothing so changes your disposition towards another person when you begin praying for that person. It's because when you pray for another person, you begin to see what God sees. And you begin to see how God saw you. Jesus goes on here in verse 29 to teach us that love means dying to ourselves. Verse 29, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. From the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do so to you, do so to them. The examples in, Je in which Jesus gives here are meant to show us that for us who are followers of Christ, we have truly picked up our crosses and we have died to ourselves. The example of being struck on the cheek isn't a call to literally tell a person who has punched you in the face to now say, now punch me on the other side of the face. No, that's not what he's telling us to do. That's not the point. Jesus himself was struck in his face by an officer of Annas in John 18, who said, is this how you answer the high priest? And lo and behold, Jesus, he didn't turn to the other cheek and tell the officer to hit me again. Rather, Jesus rebuked him for unjustly hitting him. What is Jesus saying here? A strike to the cheek was more of an insult than a violent crime as it was a, a backhanded slap, something which was grossly offensive. It, it was a defamation of character. Jesus is saying to his disciples to seek not their dignity, but to let the insults come. Not to be so high on self-reputation and self-esteem that you would desire to retaliate against another person because of an insult, but rather to take the insult because you know who you are. You are a son. You are a daughter of the Most High. 
You have been brought into God's kingdom. Your reputation is secure. Not in yourself, but in Him. Let your response, therefore, be gracious. The same is said in the example of the cloak and tunic. It is a dying to self. Not only personal reputation, but personal possessions. Jesus' point here is not that we keep taking our clothes off to the point that we're naked. No. But it's about generosity, even to our enemies. That our possessions not possess us so as to deter our gospel witness. That's the point. That we would be giving even to our enemies. That the demonstration of the power of God's kingdom would be seen in us who hold tightly not our wealth and not our goods, not our things, but Christ. Which is why we're able to give to those who ask with legitimate needs without demanding anything in return. You see, we who belong in the kingdom are asking, what can I give rather than what will I get in return? This is what Jesus is saying in verse 30. An attitude towards even those who seek to do us harm that is absolutely unlike the attitude of this world. Listen to this commentator, Leon Morris. He says this, If Christians took this command literally, there would soon be a class of saintly paupers owning nothing and another of prosperous idlers and thieves. It is not this that Jesus is seeking, but a readiness among Jesus' followers to give and to give and to give and to give. You see, what ought to control us is not personal reputation or personal possessions, but the love of Christ. Like Paul said, the love of Christ controls us. In this sermon on loving our enemies, Christ, he does a deep dive into our hearts to see what is ruling and reigning in there. And we ought to ask ourselves, what controls you? What controls me? What is it in your life that sets the compass for how you live? That's the thing with what Jesus demands from us in this sermon. If not supernatural, it will be impossible. If not by the power of His holy and transforming Spirit, it will not happen. Well, thirdly and lastly, and this won't be long, how can we do this? What is the motivation behind this command? Notice verse 35. Jesus says to us, But love your enemies and do good and Lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. How are we to love our enemies? The basis is on the generosity of God. Matthew's account, he puts it this way, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and the unjust. I want you to notice what Jesus is saying here. That we are to love our enemies, not on the basis that they are enemies, but on the basis that God is our Father. You see, the answer to how we can love like this 
It is by the direction in which we are looking. Not on ourselves. Not on our enemies. But on God who is our Father. Whom we find is generous both to the just and the unjust. In giving His common grace to both the evil and the good. And if we are truly sons of our Father, then we will be generous as He is generous. We will love as He loves His enemies. And you see, at the end of the day, we really have to ask the question, who is God's enemy? Who is God's enemy? The answer is, it used to be me. Romans 5.10 tells us that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. You see, this command really takes us, doesn't it, to the very epicenter of the Gospel. That in love, He sent His Son to die for the very people who hated Him, for the very people who rebelled against Him. That salvation comes from the enemy-loving heart of God who reconciles sinners. Yes, sinners to Himself. And so where do we ultimately learn how to love our enemies? Beloved, it's at the cross. That's where we learn. We learn how to love our enemies at the cross. For there the Lord Jesus was surrounded by His enemies. Cursed. Mocked, abused, struck, his cloak, his tunic, taken from him. He was stripped even of his dignity. But what did he demand from his enemies? Nothing. Rather, he did good to those who hated him. Suffering the just penalty of their sins. He blessed those who cursed him. Offering his life as a ransom. He prayed for those who abused him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is where we learn to love our enemies. At the cross where we, we, were the very enemies that Jesus died to forgive. And if you're not a Christian, why would you refuse this love? And now is the time to repent and to come to Him. To come to Him in trusting faith that He who died has died for you. That you would come to Jesus and be reconciled to God. Let's pray together. Holy and eternal Father, we thank You for revealing to us the graciousness of Your love in and through Jesus Christ. For drawing us near and not only informing our not minds, but bringing us low and humbling us. By Your Spirit, Your Word has searched our hearts and we confess that there is enmity in them. That as sons and daughters of Your kingdom, there is still bitterness. There is resentment. There is in us that which is contrary to what we've been shown. And we love not because we have failed to grasp your love. We love not our enemies because we have forgotten we were the enemy. And so, Father, forgive us for harboring this sin in our hearts. By your grace, help us to love 
and to pardon as we repent. And would we demonstrate the power of your kingdom of your beloved Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.